Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 99, almost there, and after episode 100, we can finally end this, th- end this thing, that's very exciting, but we've got, uh, we have a limited amount of time, unfortunately, so we have to jump right into it, uh, we can't engage in the banter that you all love so much at the top of the show, uh, so I will give some uh, quick announcements, first off, I want to say thanks to Gene, last name I cannot pronounce, over at Let There Be Movies, who wrote a very nice review of More Than One Lesson, a surprisingly in-depth one. So if you go to letthereBeMovies.com, I think that's it. It might be letthereBeMovies.wordpress or blogspot, I don't recall. There will be a link to it in the show notes, so you can just click on that. Uh, but yeah, it was a very nice, very nice review, and, uh, and we really appreciate it. Uh, moving on. So, okay, this is going up Thursday night. Uh, today's, what, the 20th? No, you're right. Okay. Uh, 20, yeah, okay. Oh, yes, of course. Um, so it's going up the 20th. If you're hearing this before the 22nd and you live in the general area of West Virginia or perhaps Pennsylvania or even Virginia proper, um, you can go to the Mountaineer Film Festival on March 22nd at 3.30 p.m. in Block Hall in the Creative Arts Center of West Virginia University. That's in Morgantown, West Virginia. And you can sit in on, well, not sit in, you're not part of it, but you can watch a panel uh, on faith and film that I will be a part of. Um, I'm traveling to West Virginia to take part in this thing, uh, and I'm very excited to do so. Um, I'm excited about the conversation that will happen. And uh, I will say, uh, when it was first announced that this panel was happening, I thought, Oh, okay. Uh, it'll probably be like like maybe twenty people in the audience. You know, there'll be actual film festival stuff. People will be wanting to watch the movies. Now it turns out we're in like the main hall, and there's nothing showing while the panel is going on. So people have nothing else to do except see this thing. So pressure's on. I'm nervous. We can move on. So check that out. You can. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, and then lastly, just last night, um, uh, our writer. Reed Lackey wrote a a very in-depth article about the television show Lost, which just had, I think, like its 10th anniversary uh, thing for uh, at the at the Paley Fest, which I believe Reed attended. And so clearly he's been thinking about Lost. And uh, even though the show went off the air like two or three years ago, maybe even more, uh, uh, he has some very good things to say. It's a very in-depth article. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com. Now. Uh, I will welcome in, although I already asked him what day it was, I will welcome in our co-host, Josh Long. Josh, hey, welcome back. Thanks, glad to be back. You were, you were on set for a long time. I sure was. 
and it uh, really made scheduling difficult. Difficult, but now got nothing on the horizon, so there we go. I don't understand. I pay you so much more I than, know. Those, than those movies. I don't understand why it's, you prioritize those over this. I guess it's just a passion. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the thing. Even though we only record like once a week, basically, I like to have you on call. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. I come over here at two or three times a week, and then you're like, you know what? I don't think we can record today. And I'm like, yeah, oh, uh, just, all right, all right. You just sit there as I just like am in, in like a trance and like. Right. I'm not feeling it today. Right. But I collect those paychecks, so it's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so, okay. Enough banter. <laughs> yeah. That's Josh's back is basically what I'm saying. Um, if we had more time, I would ask him about being on set and all that, but, uh, we don't have time for that. Moving on. All right. So, uh, the movie that we are talking about is Paul Greengrass's Captain Phillips, which came out last year. Uh, listeners of Battleship Pretension know that it is one of my favorite movies of last year. I believe it was in my top five, maybe top six. Uh, Josh, I believe it was, it placed in your top ten as well. It was. I think it was like eight, maybe, okay. seven or eight. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, it's. Uh, I did not print out a uh, plot synopsis, but it's based on the true story of uh, Richard Phillips, who was a uh, boat captain whose uh, boat was, in 2009, I believe, whose boat was beset by pirates, and they took over the boat, but then uh, <clears throat> then he, they took him in the little lifeboat. So it was him and four pirates stuck in this lifeboat, and the Navy and, like, the... Uh, I, I, I did some research, and uh, the sheer amount of American resources that went into saving his life uh, was... Here's the thing. I, it sounds terrible to say, but it seems disproportionate. Like, it seems like this is only one guy. But, of course, at the same time, I like that. I like that the, that the United States values uh, uh, an American citizen so highly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's that story. Uh, and it's directed by Paul Greengrass, the director of uh, The Born Supremacy and Ultimatum, as well as United 93. He also did a movie called Green Zone, which I didn't see. He did a movie called Bloody Sunday, which I did see and loved. Um, so I'm sorry to be rushing through all this. I want to really get to the the meat of the discussion and get kind of the, the basic facts out of the way. Uh, it starred uh, Tom Hanks and newcomer Barkad Abdi and Catherine Keener and, and uh, a number of uh, character actors and such. So, okay. I guess that sets the table. Uh, I will lead off as far as what we thought of the film. I will lead off by saying I love this movie. Um, I was watching the Blu-ray and the special features on the Blu-ray uh, last night to kind of prepare for this. And I was reminded that uh, I, this movie really, it really like held me in its grip the whole time. And I was very invested and it just really, I really responded to it. Um so, uh, and we'll talk more about why uh, in a moment, but first, I will ask Josh. Josh, you and I saw this movie together. Yeah, that's correct. We yeah. did. And uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was good. That's Josh Long. All right. Uh, Valuable component of more than one last week. Um, no, I, I, I thought it was good overall. It was funny because I, I started out not liking it a whole lot. It was funny, actually, that Tom Hanks' accent was bar- bothering me at the beginning, hmm. um, which by, by, you know, 
30 minutes into the movie, I didn't notice it anymore, which I guess right. means it was working. Yeah. But I had that feeling when it first started out, like, oh no, is this going to be Tom Hanks doing an accent again? And I was having flashbacks of other movies that he has an accent in, mm-hmm. like The Lady Killers and... Uh, <laughs> And, well, uh, I like the Lady Killers. Well, I like him in the Lady Killers. Right. Pardon me, but I don't like that movie, and I don't like uh, Charlie Wilson's War, which he also has an accent in. Mm-hmm. Not that, not that there's a necessary connection between the movies where Tom Hanks has an accent and whether I like them or not. But um, um, he does an accent in Catch Me If You Can. He does. I don't remember him in that movie. Oh. So he's in it. Th- I, so I've heard. Yeah. Um. All, all that to say, so I started out think like kind of being unsure about it, and I feel like there were things that were distracting me. Um, but once I think it gets into the action and I guess the study of how the things actually happen on the ship and how those large cargo ships deal with pirate attacks, yeah, um, then it became very interesting, and the dynamics between the crew and um, the dynamic with him as captain. And what that means and what they think of him and how that affects then how they act when they get into trouble. There's a lot of, lot of interesting stuff in play there. And um, then by the end, I, I liked it a lot. I, yeah. I, I really like the way that it ended. Yeah, and we'll get to the, uh, the ending a little in a moment because it is entirely possible that I would – that that ending is what made me – love the movie as opposed to merely really like it and really respond to it. I think I could also say that ending tips the scales for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned, uh, the, the procedure, not merely the procedure of getting the boat, uh, in the water and getting it going, but also the procedure when, when pirates are spotted, it is, uh, it is sort of assumed that this will happen sooner or later. It's more of a question of when, not if, um, and I am always fascinated when I see procedures – when I'm introduced to a world that I'm completely unfamiliar with, but it actually does take place in our world uh, right now. And, you know, it's just working class people doing a, a, you know, doing a specific job that affects all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's so unfamiliar to me, the idea of these guys just – they're just transporting cargo and their lives could be in danger mm-hmm. and they have a procedure for that and the and they don't have they don't really have like security officers aboard or like guns or something which fascinates no. me they have all these other measures that I never even thought about they've got these fire hose type things all around the ship that just admittedly do and it seems like well that seems like a poor uh a poor substitute for firepower, but it does the job mm-hmm. uh, up to a point. Uh, unless, of course, one of them is broken and therein lay the problem. But, um, but yeah, and I think one of the reasons that I, I like the movie so much and I like Paul Greengrass as a director so much is he's very good at laying the groundwork and creating uh, the world, the environment, and the tone in which the story will take place. Um, he needed to sell that not merely captain Phillips, but his crew are men who know what they are doing and are, and can be calm under pressure, Mm -hmm. uh, and can get things done. And so, uh, if, if he, if he had introduced the pirate thing or had them make it aboard the ship within the first 15, 20 minutes, somehow that's not quite, you haven't quite established things enough. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that, that goes a long way of just selling 
the world to us. But, um, but yeah, what I will say is once the action starts, um, you know, you and I for a minisode recently talked about the Hurt Locker and that Catherine Bigelow is primarily an action director. Um, and, or certainly to that point she was, I think these days she has kind of graduated to something a little bit, a little bit, I won't say higher, but just different. Um, let's say more prestige. Um, (laughs) prestige. Yeah. And so, um, and Paul Greengrass, though he started with, uh, you know, bloody Sunday, uh, which is kind of a, a docu, uh, docudrama kind of thing. Um, he moved into the, the Bourne movies and then, uh, green zone, which again, I didn't see. And so he became a very solid director of action to the point where a lot of the, his choices, which I'm not sure I necessarily like, though I do enjoy the Bourne movies. Um, a lot of his choices went on to influence American action, uh, just in general, like kind of the shaky cam, the, the chaos cinema sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he became uh, a very distinct voice in the world of action. And somehow it seems like uh, it, it seems only right that an action director would make Captain Phillips. Somehow, if they had gone with uh, a director of just pure drama, I feel like it wouldn't have been as engaging. Uh, I'm sure the suspense still would have been there, but he stages it and shoots it and edits it like it were a Bourne movie. But the main character isn't quite as uh, lethal as as Jason Bourne. But uh, one of the things that I like that the movie does is shows that, like, well, heroism comes in a lot of different forms, and it doesn't always look like this uh, Superman. Yeah. Uh, especially, and that that gets to the end when we're reminded that this guy is indeed just a human being, like mm-hmm. like anybody else. Um. So yeah, uh, it is a movie that's very kinetic at times. Like it's just. Like the just the suspense, it just always had me. It always had me in the palm of its hand. I was always invested. I didn't. I mean, I knew that Captain Phillips doesn't die, but I didn't know if the crew, if any of the crew members died. I didn't know the story of the of the pirates or whatever. Um, and so I was always kind of on the edge of my seat, excited to see what would happen next. Um, And then uh, I will say, okay, so I think the thing that strikes me most about the film is the performances, particularly the two uh, primary performances, uh, and that is by uh, Barkad Abdi as uh, uh, Muse, the lead pirate, and then Tom Hanks as Captain Phillips. Uh, Barkad Abdi uh, was recently nominated for an Academy Award for this film, his first film. And what I will say about his performance is that he has to sort of walk a tightrope because this character is fooled often and is manipulated by Captain Phillips. Um, And so it would be easy to play him as just dumb, still dangerous, certainly, but dumb. And the character as written could be played like that, not to play, not to imply he's written dumb, but you need to show that this character is not necessarily stupid, but he's in over his head and is trying to figure out things as he goes along. And as he's trying to figure them out, uh, he's getting pressure from the other pirates. He's being manipulated by captain Phillips and the situation is just always kind of, uh, weighing on him. Mm -hmm. And so 
he makes bad decisions, but he can't seem – if you make him seem too easily manipulated or too easily fooled, then he ceases to be a major threat and the yeah. suspense goes away. He's not as dangerous because you assume that eventually he's going to make a mistake that that yeah. means he, he'll just lose. Yeah. And you can, you'll just – you would see that coming from a mile away if he was just kind of a dummy. Yeah. Um, and also – they get, and that's the other thing is they also give the character um, – they kind of spell out the environment uh, from which he comes, which is not an easy environment. And you can see how he might become uh, a pirate at age – I think the character is like 17, 18. He's very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see how he how he could see himself as being forced into this – Mm-hmm. life uh out of uh economic necessity and that kind of thing uh but and so the character has our sympathy to a point without being 100 percent sympathetic like that's the thing he's all of these things he is in over his head but not so much that he ceases to be dangerous he's sympathetic but not so much that we are rooting for him to continue <laughs> holding people hostage mm-hmm. um and a lot of that falls on the shoulders of Barkat Abdi, who, when the character is making decisions, either dangerous or sympathetic or whatever, uh, we have to believe that this is all one character. Because that's mm-hmm. the other thing. The character could seem really contradictory in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but through, the, through his performance, he holds all of these things together. And I think the character works uh, tremendously. Yeah. Now... I will say Tom Hanks was not nominated for for an Oscar last year, and that was stupid on the part of the Academy. As much as I do enjoy uh, American Hustle, Christian Bale could have easily been swapped out for Tom Hanks, and I think should have been. Um, this is as as hyperbolic as I will be about the film and how much I love it. Um, and part of me thinks, well, maybe I'm overselling it. I cannot oversell Tom Hanks' performance. You mentioned his accent. Now, his accent is consistent, and it's pretty good. It's just any time an actor does an accent, my first thought is like, oh, geez. Even if the <laughs> accent's good, it's just yeah. like, all right, you don't – what are you trying to prove? <laughs> Which is not a – and sometimes I'm taken out of it because I'm like, well, I know that's not how they talk. Yeah. So, I don't know. But I tend to think in those terms. Like, hmm. one of the reasons that um, that Heath Ledger's Joker never – I always liked it, but never loved it. Like some people is just, I, I know it sounds weird, but like, I know that that's not how Heath Ledger talks. Not Mm -hmm. merely is he not doing, is he doing like an American accent, but he's also layering on this other thing. And I understand the Joker is very, uh, affected. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I'm able to excuse it in that way, but, uh, I feel like with that one, because it didn't look like him so much, somehow it was easier for me to accept. Yeah. It was almost as if I just forgot that it was Heath Ledger at all. Like, he didn't even think of him as an actor, because it looked so looked and sounded so much different than him. I suppose so. Well, that was um, me, anyway. Yeah, it, and it was most people. For, I get... I it's, the, it's Weird things distract me and take me out of a movie. Mm, if an, yeah. I think I've said it on this show, maybe on BP, I don't remember. But if an actor does his own stunts, that actually takes me out of it. Oh, really? Because <laughs> part of me... Cause, when you the theory is that you're supposed to watch it and think, oh wow, look at that, mm-hmm. the actor is doing his own stunts, or or you're supposed to be, or you're supposed to just think that the character is doing this. But of course, we're so used to not seeing an actor's face mm-hmm. as this is happening 
that we've just grown accustomed to it. Then if we do see the actor's face, my first thought is, wow, Tom Cruise is doing his own stunts as opposed to, wow, this is exciting. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it, it takes me out of it, strangely enough. Um, and just think like, wow, that looks dangerous, but obviously not too dangerous. Otherwise the insurance company wouldn't have let him do his own stunts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that's me. I, I, that's, that seems to only be me. Um, but, uh, okay. So enough of accents and such enough. Um, I think this is maybe my favorite performance by Tom Hanks. Um, I think certainly towards the end, not merely the very last scene that you and I are talking about, but like probably the last 10 minutes, he's doing great stuff throughout. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment. But in those last 10 minutes, he's doing something that not only have I never seen him do. I don't know if I've ever seen an actor do it, do that sort of thing. Um, and I'll, I'll, I will say that basically there's a scene where, cause throughout he has to manage his emotions, uh, in order to navigate, uh, the danger. Um, he has to seem very calm. He has to try to, you know, has to try to manage, uh, his captors and get them constantly talking, getting them to see him as a human being and thus a little harder to kill, Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. There's, I think a strange kind of father son relationship between him and Barkat Abdi. Like he does often kind of approach him in that way of, 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 uh, maybe disciplining him as a, not disciplining him as a father would, but questioning him as a father yeah. would like saying that this, why would you do this? This is yeah. a great idea. And I do like how, um, I feel like the, their dynamic becomes more interesting in the because the character, Captain Phillips, the character is more direct and more kind of, uh, confrontational with him. Yeah. Then you would expect someone in that situation. Like the, it, it almost makes you a little bit nervous when he does. Cause you think yeah. these guys like are crazy and they want to kill you, but he, he sticks to it sometimes and is really kind of pushy with them. And, and I think it's, it's this, he ha he, he must know that like, well, if these guys kill me, they're dead. There's no question about it, you know? And so they need to keep me alive, but they're so on edge. They might forget that. Uh, so just trying to like realizing what leverage he, what leverage his being alive has, uh, while also not pushing too far. You're right. Like, and you yourself like, shut up, man. (laughs) Don't say what are you doing? (laughs) Um, just play ball, man. (laughs) And, and some of the, uh, and some of my favorite exchanges and some, some of the theme that we'll talk about come from those, those, uh, conversations in which he's asking, why are you doing this? And and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, And so, but the character, I'm sure at any moment, as any of us would, you know, if you were to hear his thoughts, I'm sure they would just be, ah, just (laughs) screaming the whole time. Uh, And then when everything is finally resolved, albeit in in an unfortunate way, um, but a necessary one, um, when everything is finally resolved, uh, the character can finally express what he's been feeling for days, I believe. Um, and that moment is so guttural and so vulnerable. Like actors in general are not often called to just express that fear is a hard thing to express in general. Um, I've, I've had a great deal of uh, respect over the years for any uh, actor or actress who can 
convincingly portray fear, specifically uh, in like a horror movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween, where they have to keep that, they have to sustain that for, for a long, long time, of time. Yeah. Um, without it becoming monotonous. That's the other thing. They also yeah. have a responsibility to the film itself. Yeah. Um, and for him to play a low level fear, but not be conquered by it. And then at the end, finally just letting out everything he's been feeling. That's very rare. He does it very convincingly. And then the character's in shock. And I've only been in that type of shock. Like I'm going to say twice in my life. Uh, once when my brother and I were in a car accident that flipped the car over and I like, the blood was drained out of my face and I was having conversations, but like I clearly didn't, had not, was not understanding the weight of what had just happened. Uh, and then, um, and then the other was when I had heard that, uh, my father had passed away and I was having a hard time getting a handle on what was being told to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a, in the moment, it's very, it's very strange to experience that. I don't know if you've ever experienced shock. I know that at the very least physically you've gotten hurt a number yeah. of times. I don't know if I, I don't know. I can't think of a time that I have. Yeah, it's, it's something that, and that's the thing. Part of me, I don't really expect it to happen again in my life. Um, unless I receive some like terrible news or something like that. But, uh, in the moment it's, it's, it's very strange because you feel like your mind is there and you feel like it's the other person that isn't making sense. Like they're not being clear. And so you feel a certain degree of frustration uh, and you're like, wait, what, wait, what are you, what are you saying? Yeah. Um, and if you were to ask me to replicate that, what I just did is about as far as I would go. And I'm sure there is a very, I'm sure to the person watching, it would look infinitely more frightening and people are like, Oh my gosh, this guy is in bad, bad shape. And so Tom Hanks has to answer basic questions by a medic at the end. And he's clearly in shock. Like something terrible has just happened. And I, I rewatched the scene last night and it is so amazing. I don't know how he found it in him to uh, it, like how he found it in him to know exactly how to play it. And the character is constantly on the verge of tears. And sometimes the tears are coming out. Sometimes they're not. Um, because the thing about shock is like, you're not able to process anything, including emotions. Like, right. If he was able to, he probably could just, just start crying. Right. So those emotions are all there, but you don't know how to package them or, or handle them or, yeah. or what even to do with them. Yeah. And so it's weird things come out at weird, weird moments. And yeah. it's this, it's a very strange state of humanity that mm-hmm. is hard to identify with because even if, even if it's ever happened to you, it's not the sort of thing that you can remember directly. Yeah. Um, because of, because of the nature of the state. So it's, it's, that has to be something that's really hard to do. And he does it so well. And by the way, I, I don't, I don't necessarily like to factor in the stuff that is required uh, of a production or something like that because I don't necessarily like to say, oh, this film worked really well when you consider this. It's like, yeah, but not everyone's going to consider that, so did it work well is, is, the, main, is the main question. But I was watching some special features on my Captain Phillips Blu-ray. That scene was not scripted. That scene was not planned. They were not going to shoot it. You're kidding me, really? It was decided by Paul Greengrass and Tom Hanks – at the last minute in which 
they just said like, well, what, what, did, what happened with Captain Phillips after they got him off the boat? And they said, well, they took him immediately into here. And they're like, all right, well, let's, let's do that. That's so they, awesome. So they had like the actual, like the actual ship medic mm-hmm. question him. Uh, and she was not ready for this, by the way. <laughs> and so Tom Hanks had to be like, look, uh, it's fine. Don't worry about getting flustered. Just ask the questions you'll always, that you would ask of anybody. Um, and, and her professionalism sells the reality of it yeah, too. Yeah, no, that's true. Because you keep wanting her, like, as he starts to cry and is asking, like, does my family know that I'm okay? You expect her to, like, just hug him. Right. You, well, because you're thinking of it like, like it's a movie. And yeah. you expect there to be that, you know, reverse shot to her where she's like, look what he's been through. Yeah. And, like, she becomes our audience surrogate. But... In reality, that's not the case. Like, this is a clinical thing for her. She's used to this sort of... She's a medic. Like, medics deal with shock all the time. Which makes makes the scene so much better when it's... When she's the constant and he's the variable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Man, oh, man. And and so the fact... So I will... I'm going to incorporate this bit of knowledge I have. The fact that they basically just put that scene together. The most effective scene in the film, in my opinion. They put that together on the fly is astounding. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that. And that's the kind of, that is the kind of thing that Paul Greengrass, uh, excels at is the way he works. He can be very go with the flow and do what sometimes what the actor suggests. Sometimes he has a thought and just works with the DP and says, how do we make this work? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it, and that is the note that the, that the film ends on. And I believe it was uh, in the interview, Tom Hanks mentioned that at the, beginning of the film uh there's a scene rather clunkily written in my opinion between tom hanks and his wife played by Catherine keener yeah maybe um, that's another reason i didn't like the accent because it was a clunkily clunkily written scene yeah it's i, I don't understand like I, I guess i kind of from a thematic standpoint understand why that scene is there and also to establish his home life i get it but part of me is like why do they there's a little unnecessary exposition in there. I think there's some stuff about his kids that isn't really necessary that yeah. comes in there. I don't remember. And that's the thing. I'm okay with bringing up his kids, but the way they bring it up, like, you know, you're married. I'm married. When's the last time in the car you were saying like, you know, I think we're doing okay. It's like every once in a while I have that conversation. Sure. But it's, it's a rare conversation where you just assess every single thing in your life. And yeah. just, and if I had kids, even if they'd moved away, I feel like I'd be, I wouldn't say stuff like, you know, hey, our kids are doing all right. It's like, yeah, she knows. Why are you saying this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess that's for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a scene in which um, Catherine Keener asks, you know, are we going to be okay about whatever it is? Uh, and then in the final scene, you have the medic ass- uh, assuring Captain Phillips that he's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not realize that when I first saw the film, but uh, and it didn't happen like it wasn't planned out that way. Yeah. It's just something the medic said. Right. Uh, and Tom Hanks thought that that was a nice little bookend that just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that I like about some movies is, is when things just happen mm-hmm. as much as I like stuff to be planned out um, as movies invariably need to be. You're an assistant director. You, you get it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'll harken back to uh, uh, my, episode with jacob kinberg and peter borut about the making of ice shield of aletheia <laughs> sometimes yeah. you gotta plan something yeah <laughs> um but uh but yeah and so um but i do like when when actors or writers or dps or whatever when they find something in the moment they're like let's we need to follow this where it's gonna go 
and it led to Captain Phillips led it from being a very good character driven thriller to something much more effective and mm-hmm. and uh, resounding to me. Yeah. Um, I was much more invested. Like, I mean, I, I came away from when I first saw it, like I kind of choked up a little bit at the mm-hmm. end. Um, watching it again last night, I, I didn't even watch the whole movie. I just kind of skipped to that scene that, so that I could talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I choked up there too. Like, and I was like, man, this is just getting to me. And, and I, I've been talking about like the, the last, part of the film but also uh, i do want to really specify like so much of that works because of tom hanks and just a complete lack of vanity on his part you know shock is not a flattering thing to play yeah um and he plays it uh beautifully and so it's somehow it seems appropriate that he wouldn't be nominated for an oscar (laughs) because the it's not a remarkably showy role it's merely doing what the character requires mm-hmm. as opposed to, again, I enjoy Christian Bale in American hustle, but everything about it is pretty showy. Yeah. Or even maybe the Matthew McConaughey performance. Again, I hadn't seen Dallas buyers club, but right. on the surface, at least it seems like much of a more yeah showy type of thing. Probably. Yeah. At the very least people, you know, tend to respond to the weight loss thing. And if yeah. that's what the character requires, so be it. That's fine. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, we will move on. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say about? Uh, I think it did just occur to me. I do have a note here of something that I wanted to mention about uh, Paul Greengrass. But um, did you have anything else you wanted to throw out there? Um, I think m- most of the stuff I want to talk about comes in in the themes. Okay. So uh, yeah, I feel like we covered it. Uh, what I will say is, I think back when you and I talked about Moneyball, uh, I talked about there's so much invisibility in film. For example, Moneyball, there are characters who are watching, like, the game on television. And sometimes they'll have footage of the actual game that they're watching, but they'll cut back and forth between TV and then inside the the game itself. And so they literally have to stage a baseball game. And they have to stay, and they can't stage it in a way that says, look at us, we're staging a baseball game. It's literally you're not even meant to think about it from film uh, from the point of view of film. You're meant to just accept that a baseball game is happening like you as though you were at the stadium. And that's it. You don't the the amount of effort that went into making that happen is invisible. The essence of it is that you're not supposed to recognize in the moment how much has gone into it. Um and I guess, and that goes, you know, that, that goes to what I was talking about earlier, where like movies that call too much attention to the things that they've done tend to take me out of a movie, a movie mm-hmm. like children of men, though I think is a, you know, great technical achievement. Like people talk about those, those long takes. And my first thought is like, yeah, but they're so showy. It's like, you're talking about this long take. What about character? What about story? What about these other things that the film is ostensibly about? Um, and so a movie like, Moneyball is actually it doesn't seem like a pretty large scale film but when you realize that they're shooting in a stadium and having to make this look like something with thousands of extras and that sort of thing it becomes much more of a of an achievement. Captain Phillips is like that as well. You're not meant to think, you're not meant to realize, wow, Paul Greengrass shot on board one of these ships and there's a lot of work that goes into making that happen. Mm. You're 
you're not meant to think how much work would go into making those hoses go off. And while the pirates are getting close and you can't have the actors themselves get sprayed with fire, uh, fire hose, uh, level pressure mm-hmm. uh you don't think about all the orchestrations that go into that yeah and and one of the things i always think about especially having you know worked in production when you think about it's so hard enough to do all this stuff on land let alone in the ocean mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> like it's hard enough to have those hoses go on at the right time but and to have the right people in the boat but that boat's got to be in the right spot or else the whole shot doesn't work. Nothing works yeah. if you unless that boat's in the right shot and the right place. Exactly. And it's not super easy when you're out on the open sea. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people have heard about just the, the horror stories of jaws and how hard that was and how they went horrendously over, uh, their shooting schedule because they, they realize like, Oh, we're shooting in the ocean. And as it turns out, it doesn't do what you want. You, to, <laughs> you want it to do all the time. Yeah. Or the thing of the lifeboats in the lifeboat in the end or towards the last, you know, however, 30 minutes or 40 minutes or something of, uh, Captain Phillips, the, their shots are supposed to happen through the windows in yeah. there. And you're supposed to see particular things as the boat bobs up and down. Yeah. Like, that's, that's crazy. And they've got, Oh, and they've got, you know, like, uh, battleships that I don't think they're battleships. I think they're called something else, but they've got, there's so much stuff and I'm sure there are probably some digital effects in there, but it's almost all there. Mm-hmm. It's almost all physical and that requires such orchestration. Mm-hmm. There's really only one moment in the film and I can't pinpoint it, but I remember when we were watching it thinking, wow, that looks like a lot of work, but that was only once. And you know what? It's just as likely that I was thinking in terms of the crew on the, uh, uh, not the crew of the film, but the crew of the ship it, within the reality of the film. Yeah. It's just as likely I was thinking about that as the film itself. Um, and I have a certain admiration as much as I love, you know, Coen brothers and Quentin Tarantino and other directors who will call attention to the fact that you're watching a movie. Um, I do have a tremendous respect for directors who put a lot, who put a lot of work into just selling a reality. Mm-hmm. And, and never point back to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so um, so that's something that I think uh, Paul Greengrass, especially if you watch a movie like United 93, um, that's, that's a thing that you will see pretty consistently in his dramas. So, okay. Uh, I think that is about all I wanted to say about that. So we will move on. Um, and we'll start talking about theme before we get into the companion film. Uh, so you and I talked about the exchanges between Phillips and Musay, and specifically this fatherly, uh, vaguely confrontational uh, way of approaching the situation. And one such scene really stuck with me. Um, and a lot of people have talked about the film being about uh, the Somali pirates is like they're the have-nots of the world. So, and they certainly are that. I mean, Somalia is a not a, a great country when it comes to the uh, when it comes to its economy and like standard poor, of living. Yeah, if you're poor, like you are in bad, bad shape. Um, when you're poor anywhere, you're in pretty bad shape. But in a place like that, it's like oh, it's life threatening. Um, and so. Uh, so a lot of people have commented that, you know, that 
these pirates are doing this because what what other things can they do? And I think the film does a good enough uh, does a good job of of really exploring that of exploring like yeah these guys are in a bad situation, um, and Musa himself will regularly uh, comment that he sees himself just as a fisherman who's doing this out of necessity, but in reality he's just a fisherman, and. Um, <clears throat> And there's a, uh, an exchange here in which Philip says um, to Musa, he says, there's got to be something other than being a fisherman or kidnapping people. And Musa says, maybe in America, Irish, maybe in America. Um, he refers to Philip as uh, Irish. He does. Um, and so he, Musa regularly, um, and I don't mean to say this as a, as a you know, I don't want to be, not understanding of the situation that the character is in, but he does seem to put that forward a lot. I'm just a fisherman. Circumstances have driven me to this is essentially what he is saying. Yeah. And there is a scene where among the pirates, there's one guy who's particularly aggressive. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to say he's a hothead, but then I realized I sound like a police chief in a 1980s uh, (laughs) TV show. Um, and Phillips has done something that this guy doesn't like. And so the guy is pointing a gun right in Phillips' face. Everyone's screaming. It's There's quick cutting. It's really tense. And Musa himself is angry as well, by the way. And, and I mean, it, it really, in that moment, it, like, you know, we know Phillips doesn't die, but he certainly doesn't know. He, mm. part, part of him probably thinks, like, this is it. Yeah. This is how it's going to end. And he yells something to Muse, and he says, you're not just a fisherman. And then he, and then he yells it again. And that really kind of sets Muse back on his, on his heels. And that does, uh, I won't say it, uh, not dissolves, diffuses. diffuses. Yeah, it doesn't diffuse the tension, but that particular situation ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that scene that really, I mean, obviously the, the, the final scene in the film gets me. But from a thematic standpoint, that scene is very, I don't know, it's its striking. Yeah. This idea that, yeah, life has dealt you a bad hand, but here's the choices you made. And you made the choice to not, like, you stopped being a fisherman when you came aboard my ship and put a gun in my face. Yeah. You cannot just say you're a fisherman. At what point... At what point are you a guy? Are are you no longer a guy driven to this, and a guy who is just this? Right. You know? it, it has that double meaning of both, um, both calling him out that the reality is not that he's yeah just this, and he's just an innocent person, but yeah. uh, but also questions and and questions him enough to say like you you could be better than this. This isn't the only choice you have. Yeah. You know, it's it's both. Um, it both challenges his uh his cover and the uh the excuses that he's giving himself yeah and it is it you know obviously in the moment uh it doesn't seem remarkably fatherly because of the, yeah. the situation but there are other th- uh, there's another exchange i wrote down in which um <clears throat> musay and the other pirates they got the $30,000 in cash that was aboard the ship and throughout, 
Phillips is saying, you, you got this money. You can just leave. Like you have money. You can't say like, you're not coming away from this empty handed, but if you stick with this, things are going to go bad for everybody. Yeah. And then things start going bad for everybody. And Phillips says, you had $30,000 and a way to Somalia. It wasn't enough. And Muse says, I got bosses. They got rules. And Phillips says, we all got bosses. Now, I will say it's not a total equivalent because Phillips' boss will probably not kill him, Mm -hmm. if I had to guess. Um, Again, I don't work in that industry. (laughs) Um, But what he is saying is like, you know, what he could be, (laughs) what he could be alluding to is any boss who looks at you as a failure for only getting $30,000 and having gotten away as a, anybody who looks at that as a failure is not a boss. Well, one could say it's not a boss at all. It is indeed like a, a sort of a slave owner, um, any number of things like he's cert- a boss is someone who says, Hey, can you please do that? I'll pay you well. And then you can quit at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, is a crime Lord. This is, you know, any number of things. Um, and pointing out like th- there is a difference between a boss and what you have. This is the life you're choosing. I just spelled out for you what you could have had. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't enough. Not because of your standards. But because of this guy is over here, are you sure this is a thing you want to be doing? Yeah. Um, and it also connects them a little bit by saying we're in the same, yeah, in the same boat. Ah. Uh, <laughs> um, but th- that you know, if Phillips is trying to do a job and Musa is trying to make it seem like he's just doing a job too, yeah. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's kind of pointing out that you're just, it's just becoming a trade off there. Like if it's just because you're, it's about your boss, like what about my boss? You know, yeah. Phillips boss puts him in danger. Yeah. I mean, being out on the ocean and now putting me in a situation where this can happen. Yeah. I am, my boss has put me in danger. Right. And I'm sure his boss isn't going to be happy if the $30,000 is gone or if the, all the cargo from the ship is gone or whatever. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I don't mean to, to act as though it's a perfect equivalent. Obviously it is not, but that's, that's the thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, thematically, this idea that the film, I think balances out, which is trying to understand Musée's circumstances, the things that could cause him to be this thing. Um, and recognizing that. I, at this point I'm talking about me, I, Tyler, as an American citizen who's middle class, who had two parents and a pretty good upbringing, uh, like, I will likely never understand the situation that Musée comes from, by which I mean, I'll certainly never experience it, and Mm -hmm. as, and no matter how hard I try, I'll never really understand it, um, and just acknowledging that, like, and when you, when you understand that fact, when you understand that you don't understand, uh, that in, uh, immediately will, uh, create a certain degree of sympathy. And certainly I don't think there'll be any condemnation of a character or a person like Muse or somebody, you know, a, a show that I really love is, uh, the wire 
which, you know, there's drug dealers and, and that sort of thing that, that don't know their parents. And this is, this was the choice that they had to, that not that they had to make, but it's a choice they made in Baltimore where if you're going, you know, if you're going to do well at all, you got to do this. If you, uh, you know, are in a certain type of situation and that's a show that, you know, went on for five seasons and you find yourself sympathizing with people who work inside the, the, the drug trade and, and that sort of thing. You certainly don't like what they do. And more than anything, there's a character who, who's a, a, a low level thug, a, a sort of a pawn. And, and he, uh, I think winds up even killing some people. I think he does a little bit of time and he gets out and opts to work in a shoe store. And when somebody finds out about that, they see him in the uniform and they make fun of him a little bit. And he's like, Hey, uh, this isn't going to put me in jail and I'm not going to get shot and I'm not shooting anyone else incidentally. Um, and so, uh, so you root for that kind of thing to happen. Um, but you also understand why a person might think that they have no choice. Yeah. It's a, it's a question of being a victim of your circumstances. I think that's one of the main yeah. themes. And I, I, I feel like Captain Phillips is in a way trying to say that no one is truly a victim of their circumstances. It, right. It's all about how you choose to deal with those circumstances. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could say, okay, so like I got a boss. We all got bosses. Now let's sub- – let's – Let's take out the word boss and say problems mm-hmm. or responsibilities mm-hmm. or I've been hurt. Mm-hmm. We've all got problems. We've all been hurt. We've all got responsibilities. And certainly if we take the time to understand other people's problems, then we might we won't be so quick to say, Oh, what a terrible person that they opted to do this. Mm-hmm. We might not condone their actions, but we can at least see how they arrived there. And in that situation, and if we do that, we might actually be in a better situation uh, to either correct them or to minister to them, you know, um, while also, while again, not, not uh, dismissing what they're doing. That's, that's why those exchanges between Phillips and Muse are so powerful is that Muse, he understands, I mean, he knows what it's like in Somalia. He understands it's a terrible thing. And so I think he, I think he genuinely doesn't want these guys to get killed. Yeah. He's trying to give them a way out that everybody is okay. Is as okay with as right. they can be. Right. Um, and so he, he doesn't want bad things to come to them, but he also understands there are natural consequences to what they are doing mm-hmm. and what they're doing is inherently wrong. Yeah. Certainly if they kill him. Yeah. Um, but then of course he's biased in that one. Yeah. I, I do like, that's one of the things that I like about the movies. It never lets them off the hook. Right. You know, it, it, um, he, he is trying to help them. And I think if the circumstances were to have ended differently, I think he, might have been able to do more to help them. I think he might have pursued helping them absolutely to a to a further degree. And uh, it's the movie is, is very clear in saying that there are consequences to these actions. Yeah. And um, while these people do come from very difficult cir- circumstances, and that's nothing to be dismissed, 
there's still a choice to be made. Yeah. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about is not necessarily just that that you always have a choice, um, but also if you are in a position where you are looking to justify your actions, you can recognize that you always have a choice. But if you are outside of that and you're watching somebody make a bad decision, understanding that the situ- it might not be as easy as it might not be as simple as you think mm-hmm. it doesn't excuse a person's a person's actions but you might you might be in a, as i said before you might be in a better position to actually help this person get out of their circumstances if you actually understand what they are as opposed to just this person's acting like a jerk get them or anything like that yeah um and another movie that i think does a great job of exploring this sort of thing is a movie that uh, we talked about a few months ago, I'm sure I don't remember exactly, um, because it was in my top ten, and that is Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. And this is a movie. It's interesting. Both as I picked that, I realized both movies are shot in a very specific type of way, um, which is kind of a Bicycle Thieves is it's referred to as uh, Italian neorealism, mm-hmm. in which they focus in on uh, like non actors and, and really making things seem real no mm-hmm. they no, didn't shoot on sets yeah um it's it's in some ways a weird precursor to the dogma 95 movies i don't know if i've ever i'm trying to think if i've ever seen a dogma 95 movie or something that would fall under that banner can you think of any yeah uh, i've seen the celebration is one or, okay. or festin i think is the danish name something like that I, sometimes it goes by both um there's one called Italian for Beginners. Oh, okay, I know that one. There's only like there's only there's not that many that are true Dogma ninety five films. Because right. some guys sold out. <laughs> yeah, is Epidemic technically one? Oh, I don't know. I, I there has to be at least one Lars von Trier one that technically is. A lot of the ones that I've seen of his. Uh, well, he made Breaking the Waves around that time, but I don't right. Think but that there's counts. there's elements of Breaking the Waves that break the formula, which right. or break the rules, which then negates it it's called um, breaking the waves they should call it breaking <laughs> the rules um but it's weird because the rest of the film kind of has elements of that mm-hmm. um the the main thing you, you've seen the film right no. oh okay um there are sort of these interstitial um i don't know exactly what they are but but uh almost these locked off shots that are very stylized and clearly uh studio lit mm. and there's music playing behind them and it kind of all of the things that make it false yeah um and those are peppered throughout and i think they're usually used as kind of uh introductions to new parts of the movie hmm. but there's such a clear departure from the dogma 95 rules that i think it like i said negates the entire film and all of the ones that i've seen again have those elements but then there are have most of the rules, but then there are these elements that take it out. Dogville's the same way. Dogville's shot much like a like a Dogma ninety five film, and there's no like props really there, but it's on a clearly false yeah. set. So uh, it's it's a weird. So it sounds like it's something that no one has ever actually done. It's more <laughs> of just a general idea. They're really only I, pe- people correct me on this if you if anyone knows better than than me, but I'm pretty sure there's like maybe twenty of them. I think there's hardly any of them that are true. Dogma 95 movie. It might, there might be even fewer than that. 
but I think there's got to be at least one Lars von Trier film that is, and I'm wondering if maybe Epidemics is, or maybe The Idiots. I haven't seen The Idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen Epidemic either, so. It sounds like Mumblecore movies well, made good on the promise of Dogma 95. <laughs> that's, that's true. They're very close. Uh, but to go back to Italian neorealism, yes, it is. It's basically that, that idea of really trying to emphasize the reality, trying to focus in on what is real, what is true, not on the inherent falseness of film. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, going with non-actors shooting on location and not having like big grandiose emotions, uh, unless the care, unless it makes sense that the character would have them, yeah. uh, dialogue that is not overwritten yeah. uh, regularly, it's I would say. more sort of low language. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've seen only a few Italian neorealist films. There's not a whole lot of those. No, either. there's not a whole lot of them either. Because technically, I think uh, officially they're supposed to start in 1940, 1941 and end in like 1954. So it's not a very long time period. That's 13 years. It is. That's pretty long. It's it's pretty long, but for a country that was impoverished following World War II and uh, didn't make as many movies as, for instance, the United States did, there's not a ton of them that came out. Or they still exist. That's one of the things. There's a lot of ones that were made at the time, but right. they're, they're just gone. Yeah. it's is uh, Okay. We can't get into <laughs> realism. Um, our mini-sode on Bicycle Thieves would have been the time to do that. And by the way, we might have. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember either. Um, so yeah, it's it's the story of this uh, guy in post-war Italy uh, who does not have a lot of money. He has a, a wife and uh, two children, or just one. I think I think he has a, a is new, there a girl like a at newborn. back at the house or something? Um, but yeah, either way, he does have a, a, a son who's probably about eight or nine, maybe even a little bit older. He's one of the most adorable children in. Film. Absolutely, imagine a young Bruno Kirby, <laughs> and there you are. Um, yeah, and so... Uh, and his name's Bruno, even. Oh, my gosh. This thing is making sense. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so this guy doesn't have a job. He doesn't... He's not, you know, doing well. And then he gets a job as... He's putting up posters, right? Putting up posters, and he has to ride around on his bike to do that. And so while he is... And he's very excited to have a job and be making some money, uh... But on his first day, I believe, he's putting up posters and somebody steals his bike. And this is it. Like, he's he's kind of out of options to a certain extent. Um, and so his excitement goes, you know, it goes from high to incredibly low. And then he and his – he brings his son along to try to find uh, the bicycle. And then uh, – spoilers, I guess. He – eventually, they realize that they can't do it. And so he decides he's going to steal a bicycle and then he gets caught and he and his son are, Oh my gosh, it's getting me now as I picture the image, (laughs) he and his son are just walking down the street, like in shame as the crowd is kind of shaming them. And we just see their faces as they're heartbroken, not merely because of their circumstances, but also because of what they've done. Mm -hmm. And, um, obviously I'm not in favor of stealing a bike or stealing anything, uh, nor is the, then the character wouldn't be, especially if the bike belongs to him. But over the course of the film, he actually finds himself doing the same thing. And who's to say that the guy who stole his bike wasn't in the exact same situation. Like it's, it winds up being, uh, among other things, among many other things, uh, an exercise in understanding and, and, uh, 
Empathizing. Empathizing. Thank you. Um, while also at the same time, at the end, there is genuine sadness because this, these people have done something that they know is wrong. Mm-hmm. At no point does I think the film I – cer- I certainly don't think the film condemns them because I don't think you could if you mm-hmm. look at that. But I think it acknowledges like – I don't think it condones what they've done no, by the end either. Absolutely not. Which is a very interesting line to walk. Yeah. And so um, – because that's the thing. If it did, then the people that are shaming them would be seen as caricatures. But right. they're not. No. They're people just like – just like uh, the yeah. father and son who they're, they're, they're as outraged as he was at the beginning of the film. Exactly. And so, um, and you could make an argument. It's like, well, they just don't understand just as he didn't understand earlier. And it's like, yeah, but that, that makes it too simple. Yeah. Um, that simplifies what is a very difficult issue. Yeah. And so, um, but there are a couple of lines that the character named, uh, uh, Antonio Ricci, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple things that he says uh, in the film that sound a lot like uh, Muse. He says, I've been cursed since the day I was born. And then he also says, your mother and her prayers can't help us. One of them says, I've been behind the eight ball my whole life. I'm never going to catch a break unless I make it myself, even if I have to break a rule to do it. And the other is, I'm going to have to help myself. Your mom's not going to help me. God's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to take things into my own hands. And that's the thing. An argument. Could, I'm not making this argument, but you can see from his point of view, if you think God's not going to help you, then suddenly you're like, if God's literally not going to help me and my family keep from starving, then really, I feel like I'm under no obligation to keep his commandments. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and that's the thing when watching these movies, when you watch, you say, and you watch uh, Antonio, you really do see how people can do things that we feel like in our lives we would never do, um, and how they do it, not casually, but you see how they have arrived at the conclusion that this is okay. Maybe not okay for everyone, but it's okay for them because look at their circumstance. And that is you know, something that I think has pervaded... Um, society and maybe even Christian society where, you know, there are things that, you know, biblically people have acknowledged for a long time to be wrong. Uh, but then people say, yes, yes, but, and then even, even Christians in, in the modern age have said, yes, yes, I understand that. But look at this. You don't understand. You've never been tempted like this. You've never had this happen to you in your life. So, who are you to say that this is wrong? It's like, well, I didn't say it. The Bible said it. It's like, yes, yes, but that's not what I mean. And, but people, and we all do it, by the way. I don't mean to say that only a few people do it. I know that I've done it. Uh, if there's a certain type of joke I want to make or a certain word I want to say or a certain thing I want to do. Um, you know, I mean, I was talking about, uh, in the Her episode, I was talking about my lack of trust, like, causing me to disengage and be dishonest with certain friends. Well, that's not right. And I was able to justify by like, yes, yes, but those friends have let me down. What? what? <laughs> like we, we all probably do this at some point in our lives. So I'm not saying that, uh, that I am immune. I'm certainly not. Um, but the, we've all got bosses, 
we all have things that we struggle with and they might be different for everybody. And if you use your boss or your problem or your circumstance to justify the thing, this thing that you do, if everyone did that, then we would live in a chaotic society. Yeah. Because there's always one other, there's always something that somebody has been through that you haven't, and thus you have no right Mm -hmm. to, to tell them, uh, you know, what, what to do. And I will bring up uh, a story that many people are familiar with, um, but I always like to emphasize a certain thing there at the end. And it's John 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now, there are so many things in this story that I love. One is the detail of Jesus just writing on the ground with his finger. <laughs> it doesn't say what he was writing, by the way. Yeah, I feel like people have made a kind of a big deal about what he was writing. I think there's whole people have theories about it, but it's one of those... Here's a weird comparison. It's like the end of Lost in Translation. It doesn't really matter what he's writing. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that's not important. And that's just a, uh, I've always thought of it as an interesting personal detail. It strikes me as, and I mean this in the, in the best possible way, it seems like Jesus is being coy. <laughs> as if they're like, what do you think? And instead of writing on the ground, he's going, dum de dum de dum <laughs> Like just doing that like he's not paying attention. Yeah, he's like he's kind of ignoring them. And then they get more and more agitated and like keep pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. And then he's like, Come all on, right, fine. Here's a single sentence. <laughs> and now if you'll excuse me, to- I'll go back to doing this. Uh, it's, it's the equivalent of a uh, dropping the mic yeah. <laughs> uh, when you make a point. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons I like this story. Um, and then another detail is they started leaving the older ones first. Yeah. I like that too. And I think it's because, Older people tend to, not always, but tend to be wiser, and they tend they tend to have a gener- a better idea of, yeah, I'm not without sin. I think I'm going to walk away. So, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Neither do I condemn you. Those are the things that people focus on, and that is indeed what makes Jesus special. He does not condemn, and he understand, and he brings comfort to societal undesirables like this woman caught in adultery. So as I breeze over that, it's not because I don't agree with it. It's not because I don't think it is important. I think it's tremendously important, but that's the part we're all familiar with. At the end, the last thing he says is neither do I condemn you go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you go and do whatever you want. Um, Keep doing what you're doing. There's no condemnation. These people don't know what it. You know, pe- these people don't know what you've been through. It's it's literally. 
I forgive you. Now, now be different. Mm-hmm. And some people would say, how does that even work? If there's real forgiveness, why is there the expectation of being different? Um, and that's, and you know, uh, our pastor has talked in the past about like living in that tension, the tension between, among other things, he was talking at the time about faith and works, but well, this, uh, this I think does go to that. Like there's, I guess there's that's the true. faith of whether or not, um, she's condemned in a, in a, in a broader sense, but then the works of she's called to leave that life of sin. Right. So I feel like it's, yeah, it's it points to that same. Yeah. And grace tension. and justice, or one could say love and justice yeah. are two different things. Both of them are wonderful. And people tend to emphasize one and not the other either. They're like, ah, there's only condemnation. What she did was wrong. She should leave her life of sin. And there's no better way to do that than killing her. <laughs> um, so that's sorry to laugh at that. Uh, like that's one thing, or it's, Oh, let's not condemn her. And in fact, let's never say anything is wrong. That mm-hmm. way we can be loving. And it's like, no one. Hey, would, everything's permissible. So that must mean it's beneficial, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, everything's beneficial. Interesting. I feel like I've read something with those words in it. <laughs> well, I assume it's some that of those sentiment. words. Yeah. I assume it's that sentiment. Um, that's a Bible joke. Everybody. There's a, a, a verse in there that says everything is, per, uh, everything is, permissible permissible but not everything is beneficial it's uh, among other things it's about personal discernment but anyway it's one of my favorite verses i love it um all right so yeah uh the and both of these movies bicycle thieves and captain phillips there is i don't think there is any condemnation certainly of, there is of, of actions but i don't mm-hmm. think there's any condemnation of the people of themselves the people. yeah and that's what i find so fascinating another movie that is similar is the movie compliance where yeah. there's really only one person that's condemned in that and that is uh, our friend pat healy's character <laughs> um but it's easy to watch that movie and say i would never do that it's like yeah i'm sure that's what these people said before it happened. Yeah. If they, if these people saw this movie, they'd be like, Oh my gosh, look at those monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like any movie that understands like, you never know what somebody has been through. You never know the circumstances that could have led them to this point. That said, that does not mean that what they did is fine. And so another, another movie that I really like is the movie unfaithful where, um, a guy discovers that his wife is having an affair and then he winds up, not totally consciously. I think you could probably call it manslaughter. Uh, he winds up killing his her his wife's lover. Uh, very in the moment, it wasn't planned out. Uh, and the you know you're instinctively like, well, I can understand that level of anger uh, over that kind of betrayal. But yeah, he murdered someone. That's not right. It is not a good thing. Um, and the film does not take the tack that it is a good thing, but it certainly finds the man sympathetic. Um, spoilers for unfaithful, by the way. Um, that's a great movie just in general. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Spoilers. No, I know what happens, so I don't need to see it's it, there's, there's a lot more going on in that movie, specifically a wonder, so. a wonderful performance by Diane Lane for which she was nominated. nominated she yeah. should have been. Um, so yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to harp too much on this. I've got a couple other quotes. Um, Okay. Uh, this is by Albert Schweitzer. I'm going outside the box. There you go. Man must cease attributing his problems to his environment and learn again to exercise his will, his personal responsibility in the realm of faith and morals. Makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here's one by Harry Emerson Fostick. 
Life consists not simply in what heredity and environment do to us, but in what we make out of what they do to us. Hmm. I'm you unfamiliar know. with that person. Do you know? Yeah, who I looked he him is? up. He's a he's a theologian. Hmm. Um, I don't remember when he died, but it was a while back. Okay. Cool. Um, and so, uh, you know, these ideas, and I feel like at this point we'd be mostly uh, mostly repeating ourselves. But what I will say is. The reason I like, it's not merely what these things do to you, it's what you do with that. Yes, plenty of people have done, come out of terrible environments. They're born into terrible environments and they choose to stay in those terrible environments because that seems like the easiest or maybe even the safest thing for them to do. But there are people that have come out of those environments and are stronger people and have done more for humanity as a result of making that choice. And that can apply to any number of things. And especially if it is something that God has commanded us, if there's something that God has commanded us not to do, but the circumstance in which we are living says, no, you need to do this. If you're going to do well at all, then even though it's remarkably difficult, we are called to do the, the harder thing, Mm -hmm. you know, to walk the straight and narrow path instead of the, the the broad path that so many other people choose and if we were to do this alone of course that's horrible and virtually impossible but the idea is god commands us you know jesus says go now and leave your life of sin would he have said that if he thought it was impossible of course he understood that it was hard but he would have would he have said that if it were impossible um don't get me wrong. I think it is impossible to live a life completely without sin. Yeah. But to strive for that thing, to right. never settle for just what you are and what your life is. Yeah. That is what he is commanding. And it has a basis in forgiveness and no condemnation. Right. It comes forth from that. And that frees you to make mistakes. Oh, yes, I did this thing and I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no condemnation in it. Now go and try to be different. Yeah. Um, and... Listener, right now you you might be thinking, maybe maybe you feel a little bit convicted and think, oh well, you know, yes, I do this thing and uh, I feel like maybe I shouldn't, but at the same time, Tyler and Josh don't know what it's like. That's true. I probably don't. Um, but if God is God, then God knows what it's like. Yeah. And so, and God doesn't make exceptions. He doesn't say adultery is wrong, but. If your wife is a nag, <laughs> then go get them, and you have you have my blessing. Yeah. To to say like, because we're like what we're saying is God God knows the the difficulty of those situations. He he knows how you feel, but knowing how you feel doesn't doesn't mean he excuses whatever it is that you right. need to do. And I think that I think that's the more loving approach. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I will. Uh, we'll wrap up with this verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, what I will say, so conceals his transgressions. It seems to me that if you're trying to justify your transgressions because, by saying, well, no, this or that, this circumstance, that thing was done to me, you're trying to conceal the transgression by saying it, it's not that it's a thing that's okay for you to do. And in that moment, you it's saying you will not prosper. Yes, you might prosper in life. 
but spiritually you will not prosper from that. Whereas if you confess it and forsake it, you will obtain mercy. And what I do like about this is that it's never too late. You can always stop whatever it is you're doing and say, wow, I've really been on the wrong path here. And now I can, you know, I can, to go back to Kevin Phillips, I can take my $30,000 and my way to Somalia and I can do something. I can go back to being a fisherman. Um, and so it's, it really, it, this is a hard episode to, to record because I realize that it sounds like we're wagging our fingers at people and saying, no, no, there is no excuse. Now there is no excuse. I do agree with that. I'm not saying there's an excuse for me or for Josh or for you guys. What I am saying is God understands what you've been through. He sympathizes with it. He, he grieves over it. You know, Jesus is, has been known to grieve in the Bible over a person's circumstances. But he also does not say that allows you to hurt other people yeah. or to be disobedient to him. And in fact, he will help you with that. If you pray to him, he can give you strength that you never knew you had. So though that living in that tension is one of the reasons that I love both of these movies. And, and one of the reasons why Captain Phillips was one of my favorite movies of last year. Mm-hmm. I will end with that. We will move on to ending. Sorry, we're not moving on anything. We're just ending. <laughs> moving uh, out. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, just to remind you, the Mountaineer Film Festival, you can see me at a panel in the Block Hall of C- the Creative Arts Center on March 22nd, 3.30 p.m. at West Virginia University. Will there be any way that we can hear recordings of that, or will there be video of that afterwards? Or is that something to find it sounds out like there's there? going to be video. I will see mm. what I can do about audio. If mm. I do get a chance to, if I do get my hands on the audio, I will post it in the feed so you can listen to it. Unless, of course, I'm not pleased with my performance, in which case you will never hear it. <laughs> so that's the plan. Um, but anyway, all right. So if you have any uh, comments on this episode, you can post them in the uh, in the blog post of this uh, of this episode. Um, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com, or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can request to be part of the group. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at more lessons. Josh is at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye.